Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. We're in the middle of a three-week series. I started it last week, and God willing, I'll wind it up next week, that we've called Revive All, and it's a little bit of a trip down... um, uh, memory lane in one sense. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at s- uh, seasons, uh, historical seasons, when the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church, on groups of people. It's a kind of a follow-up to a series I did in 2009 when I uh, did a series called The Century of the Spirit. The reason uh, is not nostalgia or history for history's sake. The goal is to stir an expectation in our hearts for a fresh move of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our time. It's a little bit of a departure from what we do normally. Normally we speak from the Scripture, so if you're new here at Gateway and thinking they didn't even reference the Bible or hardly, uh, normally we do, um, but this is just kind of a variation on a theme and uh, we're, we're looking a little bit at history as opposed to straight from the Scripture. But it is... Um, the prayer of the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2, he says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. And that's, that's the cry behind this series. Not just a, a search back into history, but a cry that what you did then, do it again. Maybe not in exactly the same way because you just don't do things in exactly the same way, but our hearts are open for whatever it is that you want to do. Again, it's the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 85 verse 6 where he says, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And there's a whole study of revival in that one verse because will you not is, um, is the need for revival. W- will you not revive us? We need revival. Again is the history of revival because God has done it throughout history again and again. That your people is the object of revival. They're the ones, we are the ones that need to be revived, that we may rejoice in you. That's the effect of revival, and the phrase in you is the end and goal of all revival because it draws us to the God of revival. So um, I'm looking, I looked last week at the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s, and I focused on a young man by the name of Lonnie Frisbee. Now, if you know history, you'll know, um, you probably will have heard of the name Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel. You might have heard of the name of John Wimber and the Vineyard. Probably, I'm guessing that many of you wouldn't have heard of Lonnie Frisbee. Lonnie was the spark that really set both Calvary Chapel and the Vineyard movement into the stratosphere of international uh, exposure. And yet we don't hear about his name, and one of the reasons is Lonnie was a very much a Samson figure. He was unbelievably gifted, and he was profoundly flawed. He died of AIDS at the age of 43, but not before God had used him in quite remarkable ways. If you want to learn more about it, then you can go back and hear the podcast. I mentioned that doing a historical study like this is a bit like looking at the Rakaia riverbed from up above and you're just never quite sure which stream to take, which one do you follow. And when you follow one of necessity, you miss out on others that might have been equally as powerful or as valid. Where, 
when and with whom revival begins, I suspect in most cases is known really only by, by God. The best I can do is kind of follow one or two rivulets and try and learn what, um, what we can about God's dealings with people in those streams, in those seasons of revival. The Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s, of which I was a part, and I'm very grateful for that fact, was like a raging bushfire. It really did get out of anybody's control. It leapt cities, it leapt nations, it leapt continents, touching people right across the world. Now, one of the downsides of that movement, perhaps historically looking back, is that the people involved in the Jesus movement, people often call them Jesus freaks, were a little bit like the larger fire. We were pretty much out of control. We were loose units, running wherever we pleased as the Spirit led. And uh, Lonnie was certainly what some people would have called a free spirit. Others might more correctly have described him as a loose cannon. Um, he certainly didn't take well to being shaped by anybody in particular. And when his spiritual fathers, Chuck Smith and John Wimber, tried to actually kind of shape him and direct him, Lonnie saw it as control and quenching the spirit and pulled away from them. Interestingly enough, Catherine Coleman, who we haven't really followed in this particular study, but had a big influence on Lonnie, was the same. And she spoke out against control, particularly as it came through what was known then as the shepherding movement. Um, the idea of the shepherding movement was that we should be submitted to other people in the body of Christ and, uh, and share our thoughts, plans, and directions with other trusted believers. Um, Catherine Coleman wasn't impressed at all. She said, the Holy Spirit is the only teacher that I need. Um, I remember a song that people used to sing way back then, me and Jesus got a good thing going, we don't need anybody else to tell us what it's all about. And that was kind of the spirit of the, of the age in the 60s, and it certainly impacted the Jesus movement. Um, the shepherding movement that I referenced last week and just now um, came out of a place called Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And when I've talked in the past about the Fort Lauderdale Five, as I'll explain in a minute, it's often been perhaps to sound a negative note. Many of you, when I say the Fort Lauderdale Five, will have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, but in the, in the 1970s, early 1970s, a group of world-renowned teachers came together and they based themselves out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Derek Prince, Ern Baxter, Charles Simpson, Don Basham, and Bob Mumford, all of them absolutely outstanding teachers of the Word of God. And it was from them that this whole idea of submission to uh, and obedience to shepherds re really came. Uh, I'm sure that many of you will uh, be familiar with Derek Prince, Lower Wright, um, educated at King's College in Cambridge, uh, a brilliant scholar. Um, Ern Baxter in the middle at the back was probably one of the greatest preachers that I've ever had the privilege of hearing. Together, as I say, these guys began to teach about the need for people to be in relationship with and in submission to shepherds. And I, I suspect it was probably an attempt to bring some balance to what they saw happening in the Jesus movement, where people were just going wherever they liked, uh, doing what was right in their own eyes, sometimes with disastrous results. However well-intentioned and actually at some level scriptural their teaching might have been, I suspect that most people would say the impact of the shepherding movement worldwide was largely a negative one, and it certainly was in Karen and my experience. 
That teaching disseminating from Fort Lauderdale went to all parts of the world and in the hands of insecure leaders it became a legalistic rod that was used to dominate and subjugate anybody who had even a slightly different opinion from the shepherd. The controversy that arose over that movement served to highlight a problem that has really plagued Christianity since its inception, and it's how does freedom and order work together? What's the relationship between organisation and the life that that organisation is meant to nurture? Now, in the Jesus movement, we were all about freedom. We wanted absolutely nothing to do with organisation or the order that was associated with it. Being 60s kids, we were deeply suspicious and cynical about all authority, and we had reason to be. Remember, it was the time of Watergate and a whole lot of other political scandals. And that cynicism was expressed in our well-worn adage where we said, don't trust anybody who's over 30. Um, I remember an article in a magazine that probably said it all, and the article was entitled Organisation or Anointing. And the idea was that you couldn't have both. You had one or the other. To have both was impossible. Now, the obvious problem with our view at that time is that every organism requires a degree of organisation in order to channel its energy and fulfil its mission. A body without a skeleton isn't going to go anywhere. So how do we get organisation and life. And in thinking about that dilemma, I found the fire and the fireplace a good metaphor, a helpful metaphor. Perhaps another way of posing the question is, how can we have a fire and yet not let it burn the house down? Refusing to be shaped and corrected, Jesus Freaks burned more than one or two churches to the ground. I think the answer for how do we have organisation in life is have the fire in the fireplace. Now, as I say, the problem with many people in the Jesus movement was that we'd observed history and we knew that while fireplaces were designed to foster the blaze, they actually often became clogged with an accumulation of soot that actually smothered the fire in the end. And traditional custodians of the fire often resisted the cleaning, remodeling uh, process and became comfortable and secure in their customs and tradition and inevitably the flame died. Now, the reformers come along, the rekindlers come along, and they are tempted to, or sometimes are forced to, move the fire out of the hearth into the middle of the room, where one of two things is going to happen. Number one, we're going to burn the house down, or number two, the isolated coals die from, a lack, from the lack of a proper structure, from the lack of a hearth. And you know, in hindsight, I wonder that the charismatic renewal, the charismatic movement, wasn't in some ways a balancing attempt to take the flame and passion of the Jesus movement and put it back in the heart of nurturing communities with all of the potential risks that that, that entailed. What I want to do briefly is to talk to you about that charismatic renewal. The charismatic renewal that swept the established denominations in the 1960s and 1970s. So in many ways it ran parallel with the Jesus movement. If you uh, again think of the Rakaia riverbed, let's go back up and flow down another rivulet that flowed parallel with the Jesus movement and interacted with it in many respects. And And I want to start by talking about a man by the name of Dennis Bennett pastor, he was an Episcopal pastor. Uh, I'm, I'm not talking about him because he 
he was the very first denominational pastor to embrace what God was doing, there were others before him. People like Agnes Sanford, Tommy Tenney, a Mennonite pastor by the name of Gerald Durstein, who wrote a fascinating book called Following the Fire, which I remember reading in the 70s and being somewhat blown away by. And then um, there was, some of you may remember, the Full Gospel Businessmen's uh, Fellowship International. Uh, which uh, also served in the purposes of God to spread that charismatic fire. That story is told by a man by the name of Demos Shakarian, an Armenian descendant, uh, in his book, The Happiest People on Earth. And as I said to you last week, I'm, I'll mention a lot of books. Generally, we'll put them up on the screen at the end of the service if you want to follow through, but that little book is worth a read. Demos Shikarian's ancestors came from Armenia, a little village called Karakala uh, in the foothills of Mount Ararat where Noah's Ark was reputed to have landed. His descendants had been influenced by Russian Pentecostals and they were a Pentecostal community. Now in that community was a little 11 year old boy, illiterate, unable to read or write, but one who was uh, often gripped by a spirit of prophecy and he was regarded by the community as a, as a prophet. On one occasion, he set two weeks aside to pray and fast, and in the middle of that two weeks, he had a vision, and he asked for pen and paper, which they thought was rather surprising since he didn't know how to write, but what he simply did was he, he copied what he saw in the vision, and at the end of it, he gave it to his elders, and it was instructions and a map. And the instructions basically said that this area would be plunged into a time of unbelievable suffering. But if the people would leave when the Holy Spirit told them to, there was a map that he drew. Then they were to leave and go from Armenia to the, west, to the eastern side of the United States, not to stop there, but to go across to the western side where God would prosper them and they would be a blessing to the nations. Demos Shikarian's family, having been touched significantly by prophecy, believed the young boy, and when the time came, they left. The people that didn't leave, very shortly after, were plunged into a time of absolute genocide. Some of you will be aware of the Armenian genocide, where the Turks came in and just slaughtered the Armenians in their millions. Actually, that slaughter became the basis for Hitler slaughtering the Jews because he later said they didn't, the, nobody stepped in when the Armenians were slaughtered by the Turks and nobody will step in when we do the same to the Jews. Demos Shikarian's family, as I say, um, went to um, California where God did exactly what he said. He blessed them significantly. The Shikarian family actually had the largest dairy herd in the world at that time, were a very, very wealthy family. Shakarian felt always that God had something else for him and ultimately he started the Full Gospel Businessmen's International Fellowship. It was an instrument that literally reached round the world introducing millions to the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Worth a read. Okay, back to Dennis Bennett. Uh, I'm starting with Dennis Bennett because what happened to him made national headlines uh, and he became a visible spark that ignited a significant fire. 
Palm Sunday, April the 3rd, 1960, he stood before his Episcopal congregation in St. Mark's, Van Nuys, California. It was a fashionable congregation in the San Fernando Valley, just north of Los Angeles. It had grown under his leadership to be a church of 2,500 people. And on this particular Sunday, Bennett didn't preach as normal, but he shared his testimony about a life-changing experience that he'd had as a result of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, accompanied with speaking in tongues. Now, rumours had begun to circulate among the congregation that something had happened to their pastor and Bennett knew that he needed to address them outrightly and openly. And in the first service, things seemed to go well, but the second service, the climate abruptly changed. And during Bennett's testimony, one of the associate ministers of the church snatched off his vestments, threw them on the altar and marched out saying, I can no longer work with this man. Things became worse at the end of the service when pandemonium broke out. A number of really angry church members did their best to rally the members against these so-called fanatics. And one man stood on the chair shouting, throw the damn tongue speakers out. Some in the congregation tried to um, uh, dampen the situation down by testifying what the baptism in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues had meant and brought to their lives, but chaos ensued. And Bennett was shocked by the reaction. He had expected some concerns, but he didn't expect that. One of the church board members came to him and uh, just before the third service, bluntly saying, you should resign. Aware that the people opposing him were absolutely entrenched and would not give up without a massive fight, he tendered his resignation in that third service, not wanting to divide the congregation. Now, it had all started months before when a fellow Episcopal priest had come to Bennett in absolute wonderment at the transformation of a young couple in his church. It turns out that they'd been baptised in the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues in a Pentecostal church, but they didn't leave and join that church. They stayed in the Episcopal congregation. They had long been nominal members turning up at Easter and Christmas, but suddenly they're there every Sunday. The priest said they were joyful. They volunteered to serve in all kinds of areas, and most shocking of all, they began to give to the church 10% of their wages. They tithed, and this priest was struck dumb in amazement and he went to them to try and find out what had happened and he said they didn't act peculiar, they didn't shout or jump or do anything wild. He said on the contrary when you're with them you can't deny they've got something. They glow like little light bulbs he said and they're so loving and so ready to help. Well Dennis Bennett was interested and he said I'd like to meet them and he met them and was deeply moved by their story and their witness. It took time and some repeated visits and some study in the scripture but it brought Bennett to a place where he wanted what they had. And he tells the story in his book Nine O'Clock in the Morning. You think, what an unusual title, nine o'clock in the morning. Well, it comes from Acts chapter two, where the Holy Spirit was poured out at that time. Now, the Bible doesn't generally say nine o'clock in the morning. I think it says the third hour of the day, but that was nine o'clock in the morning. And Bennett tells the story of the Pentecostal outpouring in his life and the church uh, in that wonderful book. They, the couple laid their hands on Bennett and prayed, and he said, my tongue tripped just as it might when you're trying to recite a tongue twister, and I began to speak in a new language. I didn't lose control, and having had language training, I knew that this was clearly not gibberish. It had grammar and syntax, it had inflection and expression, and it was really rather beautiful. And it brought about a great change in his life. He gradually introduced it to members of his congregation who had the same experience. 
But as I say, the rumours spread about what was happening and it culminated in that Palm Sunday service when in the third service he had to uh, offer his resignation. Bennett's now without a congregation, an Episcopal priest but no, no church. And the Episcopal hierarchy basically sent him off to Coventry. Um, if you're not sure what that means, the Russians would send them to Siberia. Um, he was sent to uh, the suburb of Ballard in, uh, in Seattle to a little tiny church that was just absolutely failing. It was called St. Luke's, and this tongues-talking Episcopal preach had caught the attention of the secular press. Both Newsweek and Time covered the story. Bennett was unapologetic, went to his new congregation, told him the testimony and uh, wasn't quite sure what would happen, but they got behind him. And St. Luke's began to grow in attendance and ultimately it was a church of 2,000 people and over the next 20 years, an average of 20 people a week were baptised in the Holy Spirit. Bennett became incredibly well known in charismatic circles and went and shared his testimony and his teaching in lots of historic churches. Um, Anglican churches, um, Presbyterian churches, Methodist churches, Lutheran churches began to embrace, not all of them by any means, but many of them embrace this teaching. It was about that time, by the way, that the word charismatic was used. Um, it distinguished the renewal from the classic Pentecostal churches, you know, that, that people kind of looked down on because they were born on the wrong side of the tracks, they were holy rollers, they weren't particularly well educated, and I, I wonder that charismatic sounded a little better than classic Pentecostal, and glossolalia sounded a little more uh, sophisticated than speaking in tongues. But anyway, the movement started to spread. 1967, to the absolute astonishment, and in some cases outright unbelief, of some Pentecostal churches and most Protestant charismatics, the fire jumped the fence into the Roman Catholic Church. And classic Pentecostals couldn't understand it. How could cigarette smoking, wine drinking, beer swilling Catholics be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Surely this was proof that it was demonic. I was a Catholic. I uh, didn't smoke and I didn't drink wine, no comment about the beer, but um, I, I remember going to uh, a friend's place and they were open brethren. I didn't realise at the time that the open brethren of that season um, really didn't uh, embrace the charismatic movement, in fact thought it was a counterfeit. And I shared my testimony, I'm a long-haired, I did have hair in those days, long-haired hippie, I'm a Catholic and I'm speaking in tongues and for them this was unconvertible, yeah, this was absolute proof that this whole thing was demonic. But there was one thing that they didn't understand. The dad in that family was actually an, a brethren evangelist and he had this fabulous library. And after I got baptised in the Holy Spirit, man, I don't know whether there's a spiritual gift of reading or not, but, but if there is, I got it. And I just wanted to read. And he had this incredible library. And I, just, and, and I asked him, could I borrow your books? And he just said, sure. Years later, he said to me, Don, you so confused me. He said, you're a Catholic, you're a long-haired Jesus freak and you're speaking in tongues and I thought you're right off, the, right off the deep end. He said, but none of my brethren kids, none of my brethren children's friends wanted my books. You devoured them. And he said, you so confused me. How could this possibly be God? But, but look what he's doing. Well, um, the, the Catholic movement started in Duquesne University in Pennsylvania where a couple of professors and 30 graduate students from the Catholic Theology School got together for a prayer meeting and the Holy Spirit fell on them. Speaking in tongues, prophecy, the whole thing. And like the movement in the Pentecostal and charismatic 
Protestant churches that jumped the fence and just went haywire right across the world. And that story is told in Kevin Rannigan's book, Catholics, Catholic Pentecostals, which was one of the first books I read in that whole season. The Catholic Charismatic Conference in 1973 in Notre Dame drew 30,000 participants. This is only a couple of years, and it went just wildfire. 1975, the then Pope, Pope Paul VI, gave his blessing to the movement, which increased its legitimacy and its, intimus, uh, and its impetus. Today, it's estimated that there's close to 180,000, ah, sorry, 180 million Catholic Pentecostals. Catholic people who have been baptized in the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. One incredibly healthy aspect that came out of the charismatic movement in the denominational, uh, historic denominational churches was they brought to the table first-rate biblical scholarship. They had some really, really good scholars. And people who were touched by the Holy Spirit began to bring their gifts to the table and began to flesh out the theology of what God was doing. The Pentecostals, the classic Pentecostals, hadn't done that. They essentially were born on the wrong side of the tracks. Um, they were suspicious, if not completely dismissive, of what they disparagingly called book learning. You know, it's not about books, it's not about theology, it's about what God's doing, it's about experience. And there was an old joke that ran, if you want to hide something from a Pentecostal preacher, put it in a book. Because we didn't go for books. Well, I, I did, but generally the classic Pentecostals didn't. My Pentecostal pastor was a classic in this regard. Um, he regularly ridiculed from the pulpit people who had university degrees, and he would mock us and tell us, your degrees mean absolutely nothing to the Holy Ghost. Nothing. And he'd say, besides, I have a BA, I'm born again. And I have a, you might have a doctorate of divinity, but I have a DD because I'm a devil destroyer. <laughs> and it was both true and funny and incredibly sad. But I'm incredibly grateful that the charismatic movement introduced us some really good, solid biblical scholarship. And we began to appreciate that good theology wasn't antithetical to spirit-empowered experience. We needed both. Um, as I said to you last week, Karen and I got caught in two rivulets at the same time. We were university students, so the Jesus movement was going on all around us, and we were Roman Catholics. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of got caught in both experiences. We were filled with the Holy Spirit in 1972. Um, and my Catholic curate, he was a couple of years older than I was, but um, when all of this was happening, he knew that I was really interested, and he came to me and said, Don, could you and I begin to pray that what's happening around the world in this Catholic charismatic movement could happen to, to us? And I said, yeah, man, I'm in for that. So him and I used to go into the Catholic church, we'd kneel down and we'd pray, you know. And we'd wait for 15 minutes and it's kind of like at the end of it, he's looking at me, I'm looking at him, anything happened to you? No, anything to you? No, all right, tomorrow. And we, we just met and we met and we prayed. Nothing particularly happened and university started and I left our town and went to, back to university and we kind of parted ways. It wasn't long after that, Karen and I were baptised in the Holy Spirit. We went to some meetings by um, an Irish evangelist called um, Harry Greenwood. Some of you may remember him. He came through New Zealand a couple of times. Anyway, we were powerfully touched by the Holy Spirit. I went back to tell my friend Eddie, the curate, what had happened to me and he was kind of distant 
It was like, oh, nice for you. Sucks to be me. Anyway, we, we went off. We were, we were drawn. There was, there was no Catholic charismatic movement that we could be part of, so we were drawn to, to Protestant Pentecostals and ultimately ended up jumping the fence and becoming uh, part of the Assemblies of God. And, and kind of we went our different ways. One time, probably a year later or two years later, um, we're driving back from a meeting and we called into my parents' place and in the driveway is my friend Eddie's V-dub, little V-dub, you know, the little green one. And knew it was Eddie, went in and um, said, hey, Eddie, how you doing? And he was really um, disconsolate and kind of, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm okay, but, but down. Why? And we said, today is Pentecost Sunday, Don, in the Catholic Church. And he said, I, I really believe that God was going to fill me with the Holy Spirit today. And here we are at 10 o'clock and it hasn't happened. I said, Eddie, it's two hours to go. And he said, yeah? I said, come on, we'll pray for you. Karen and I got around and we prayed and the Spirit of God fell on him. And uh, he just got so profoundly and powerfully touched. He's on the floor lying, speaking in tongues, laughing, crying, gets up, takes off his jacket, puts that down, falls down again. This went on for a couple of hours until he is down to a singlet and he's starting to take a singlet off. And I'm going, Eddie, that is enough. No more. You can't take anything more off, Eddie. We tried several times to sober him up. He was, he was drunk. We'd give him a coffee and he'd get it up to his lips and then he'd go, <laughs> grab the coffee, down Eddie would go. Two o'clock in the morning, we, we had to go to Palmerston from where we lived, which was a 45-minute drive in those days. And we said, Eddie, we've got to go. Helped him into the car, propped him up against his little V-dub beetle, and off he went. We followed him down the road. He was supposed to turn right where the Catholic um, church was and where he lived. He went left, and I said, forget about it, Karen. We're not following him. And he told us later he never did get home that night. He got wonderfully filled with the Holy Spirit and he became a real spark in the Catholic charismatic movement in New Zealand. And that movement swept over the historic denominations and I'm so grateful that Karen and I experienced that. I look back on with, with, great, with great gratitude. It's a movement, by the way, the Pentecostal charismatic experience is a movement that continues to sweep the world particularly in what we call the Global South, Africa, America, Middle America and South America, Asia, millions and millions of people are being swept into charismatic experience. Harvey Cox was a Harvard professor who wrote a famous book in 1965 called The Secular City, in which he proclaimed the end of all religion is at hand. And it was a book much toasted by the God is dead theologians of the time. But in 1994, Cox wrote another book entitled Fire from Heaven, subtitled The Rise of Pentecostal Spirituality and the Reshaping of Religion in the 21st Century. And he recognized something dramatic has happened around the globe. And he did a 180 degree turn in his thinking. And the facts speak for themselves. The Pentecostal charismatic movement is the fastest growing religious movement in the world. And it's estimated that there are probably between 640 and 680 million Pentecostal Christians around the world. Made up of 92 million classic Pentecostal people in that very first wave, 234 million charismatics in historic denominations in the second wave, and what we'll consider next week, the third wave, 259 million independent Pentecostal charismatic believers. It's sweeping the world. It continues to do it. 
And I know in a place like New Zealand, where we live in a very secular society, sometimes we think we're a weak and, and a small remnant, you know, that nobody's really interested in Christianity. Well, it's, it's not the case in most of the world. Last week I mentioned the church in Iran, probably the fastest growing church um, in the world at present, growing 200% in the last seven years at a rate of over 28% per year, largely charismatic. Mark Bradley in his book, Too Many to Jail, documents that growth, and he says, most of the members of the house churches speak in tongues. There's an expectation that God will move supernaturally, and generally, Iranian believers speak in tongues. So the Global South revival is essentially charismatic and Pentecostal. At present, over one quarter uh, of all Christians are of a Pentecostal charismatic persuasion, and somewhere in the 21st century, probably sooner rather than later, that will be over one half. Let me close with a couple of observations, most of them very personal to me, but much wider than me. I think they are patterns that uh, are associated with the Pentecostal movement. Um, with every move of God, there is always good, bad, and generally some ugly as well. But the charismatic movement, in my view, has brought massive benefits, the benefits of which far outweigh the negatives, although there are a few of those as well. For millions of people, it has meant a deeper relationship with Jesus. The baptism in the Holy Spirit brings people to Christ in new ways. Uh, I was saying this morning, as a Catholic, you know, after I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, I'd go to Mass, and I, I, I just would start to weep. And, uh, and Karen would be going, stop it, stop it. I was like, I can't, I can't, it's so beautiful. And she says, they've said the same every week since you've been a flaming Catholic, which has been, you know, X number of years. I said, yeah, no, but I've never heard that before. And it brought me to Christ in new and fresh ways. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, some people say, oh, you've got to be careful, don't we? Focus on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's purpose is, to, is about Je Jesus, and, and, it, and it is. You give place to the Holy Spirit, he'll lead you to Jesus. He ministers, magnifies, and mediates Christ. And so there is, when you encounter the Holy Spirit, a love for Jesus. Um, it made the Trinity much more real to people. The Holy Spirit is no longer the forgotten member of the Trinity. He's real, he's present, he leads, he guides, he speaks. It opened up new dimensions of worship, wherever it's gone. It's created new hymnody, full of joy, praise, thanksgiving, celebration. Some of you are old enough to remember scripture and song, which came out of New Zealand, out of the charismatic movement, went around the world, bringing scripture and song to whole new congregations. I think one could argue, and I mentioned this last week, that our expression of present-day Christian worship largely had its roots in both the Jesus movement and the charismatic movement of the 60s and 70s. It's produced in millions a new love for the scriptures. Again, as Catholics, we weren't particularly encouraged to read the Bible. There was always the fear that if you read the Bible, you'd come up with some screwball interpretation and you could be dangerous. So listen to it as the priest out, uh, um, out, lays it out for you. But once you're filled with the Spirit, the Scriptures came alive. And um, I'll, I'll never forget our neighbor who was Catholic coming over not long after we'd been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And my mum was reading the Bible. I was sitting there reading the Bible. My sister was reading the Bible. And Karen was with me, and she was reading a Bible. She went back home. She told us later and said to her husband, the devil's got hold of that household. She later became a charismatic, so she, she saw the funny side of it. But it just produced in us a love for the Scriptures. 
It brought a renewed and much needed emphasis on the gifts of the Spirit and what they were for and how they should function in everyday life. It stimulated evangelism as people had opportunity to tell their stories. Like Dennis Bennett's young couple, they glowed like light bulbs and people said, what is happening in your life? You didn't have to have the three or four spiritual laws and knock on doors, um, give out newspapers. People came and said, I see something different in you. What is it? And evangelism transpired. Musicians, would you come? All that to say this. God, would you do it again? Thank you for that. I'm so grateful I had the opportunity to be part of it. But I want to see that for a new generation. When I turned 60, real personal word, when I turned 60, I was reading Psalm 71. And you can read it if you like later. But in a passage down in the middle of that scripture, it says, you have walked with me since I am young. Now I'm old and gray-headed. I didn't particularly like that part, but now I'm old and gray-headed. Please, Lord, would you be with me in a way that allows me to show your power to a new generation? And I really felt the Lord quicken that to me. And fascinating, a couple of days later, a really good friend of mine came to me and said, hey, Don, I was reading the scriptures the other day, and this psalm came alive to me, and it's for you. And they didn't know I'd had the birthday, but, but it was that psalm. Now that you're old and gray-headed, <laughs> thank you, um, you're going to show God's power to a new generation. And I want that generation to be you. I want you to see that. I want you to see some of the things that we've seen and that we have run in the strength of 50 years. I, I, I honestly tell you, without the baptism in the Holy Spirit, I don't think I would have lasted. It was that experience, that empowering, that totally changed my life and that I have run in the strength of for 50 years. And I want that for a new generation. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.